How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like sees the it as suspicious? The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with people? I would never be a part of a church that is not welcoming as well as the local political voice against Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual the church seems to be stuck in ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church is more concerned with being a good anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today, our very, very special guest is Doug Paget. Doug is an American author, pastor, social activist, and executive director of Vote Common Good, which we will talk about later. He is a leading voice for progressive Christianity, and Doug makes frequent national media and speaking appearances. And along the way, he has written 11 books. Is that number right? Yeah, that's right. 11 books. Yeah. He has started and led an influential and innovative church in Minneapolis, Minnesota called Solomon's Porch. And his latest book outside of the one I think that was published last year is, is Outdoing Jesus, which is available now from Erdman's Publishing. So before we begin, Doug, appreciate you being here, man. This is great. Well, Kevin, this is, this is really an honor. I, I'm uh, really glad to do this. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I told you briefly when we were talking, because I'm pretty familiar with your journey the last 15 years, especially the work, the writing, the creative, the, the leadership that you do publicly, I wanted to look at snapshots of moments the past 15 years and talk about them and, and hear what was happening within you during that time, sort of hear what you think about it now, what it was, sort, how it was pushing things forward at that time. And for the people listening, one of the reasons I, for me, it would just be so fun to do, but one of the reasons I think it would be so interesting and helpful is Doug was, this is from my perspective, he could disagree with me on this, or he could blow it up even more, but Doug was saying and doing things 15, 20 years ago that are just now catching up and becoming more and more a part of the everyday conversation for people of faith and thinking about the future of the church. So, so often now I hear conversations, I see books that are written, I see, you know, high capacity leaders saying things. And I'm like, you could just read Church Reimagined from 2005 and you will see Doug, not only writing about it, but already doing, practicing, and living this out 15 to 20 years ago. So I think his perspective is such a unique one and such a gift for the culture and for the church as a whole, because I think there was, at that time, he was on the cutting edge and really creating these new grooves and paths for people to follow in for the next 15 or 20 years, and taking a lot of hits along the way in order to do that, like great leaders and innovators do. So, yeah, let, let's do that. You were seen as and were one of the leading voices in what was called the emerging church or the emergent conversation. Yeah. Now, I have my takes on that, which I want to tell you and hear what you think. Yeah, I would love to hear those. I would love. It's been 15 years. 
why was there, you know, 2005 on, right? There was this huge cultural moment for emergent, right? Why was there so much, what was happening within that? And why was there so much excitement around it and resistance to it at that time? You know, the emergent effort was really trying to take thinking that had been happening in a variety of disciplines, sociology, philosophy, religion, um, uh, technology, innovations, and to bring all of those to bear on what an expression of Christianity might might look like in the world. Now, the, I come from the perspective that there are, uh, there are no unique times. Like every time is unique, right? Every time is, is sort of is impacted by new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new ways of, of wanting to be. And when a certain group of leaders can get themselves together and, and can cross the disciplines, something sort of magical can happen. And there were the right ingredients in the late 1990s, midnight, mid to late 1990s through the mid 2010s mm-hmm. where the conditions were right for people to want to uh, learn from, learn from each other and learn from a variety of disciplines. So I, I guess r- rather than thinking that there was a cultural moment that was unique for that, that called uh, innovations in church to happen. I think there were just a group of leaders uh, and people who chose to put their energies and efforts into that, into that work. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, and but so a bunch of us just, we, we organized this I, really out of our own seeking and out of our own sense of both lostness and our own sense of, I've got an inkling here. I think there's a way forward. And those two elements were, were, were clearly, uh, were, were clearly in the, in the mix. And, you know, you could say, well, it was the dawn of a certain kind of internet age and there were lots of things happening in society and culture, but that, I don't know, that seems pretty contiguous to me uh, through time, you know, that there's a lot of periods like that. Sure. They're punctuated by moments, but I think it was, um, I don't know that the culture was demanding for it any more in the early 2000s than the culture is demanding it now. We just happened to organize in a particular way and wanted to be very public and wanted to be very um, recruiting and evangelistic about people listening to these ideas we had. We were intentionally trying to get our ideas out in the world and wanted people to pay attention to them. So we, you know, we did concerts or oh, conferences man. and books and uh, started programs and seminaries and, you know, we were just stirring up trouble everywhere we could. Yeah, uh, no, that was, that was such a fun time because my story is I didn't grow up in the church at all. I had this sort of existential, I'm barely, really good at everything I'm doing, but at the same time, it's not working. What is life? eat a bunch of mushrooms. Now I'm like, well, now I know God. So now my life goes from there. So I didn't grow up in the church and I went to that when I was 18 and by like 20 or 21, I ended up at, you know, an evangelical Bible college in California. And I was there for about a year or, or my first year. I'm like, this is good. Like, I don't have experience with this. I'm getting, this is what a conservative evangelical sort of fundamentalist foundation for faith is awesome. Great people. And I told Brian this story when he was on, I think a year or two after my time at the school in the spring semester was ending, a kid said to me, 
He said, you know, like, I don't, and I don't know the landscape of writers and everything, because I didn't grow up with that. He says, you should be careful how you talk here. And I said, why? And he said, because if you keep saying stuff like this, some of the people might think you're emergent. Wow. <laughs> and, and I think that was the summer of 2008. And so I said, well, damn, I better find out <laughs> find what emergent is. Yeah. And that, that was the summer for me where like, first book I read was Tony's The New Christians. And then I just took off from reading all of you guys and then going to like primary source. Oh, these are the, I'm following footnotes. These are the theologians. These are the socio, these are the philosophers. These are the people they're reading, right? So that was my first big sort of paradigm shift with things. But when, when that moment was happening, you and others would describe emergent as a conversation, right? No. There is a conversation happening about where we've been, where we are and where we're going as human beings, as the church, as followers of Jesus, right? And this is one of my thoughts looking back mm -hmm. now on it that I would love to hear you speak to. Yeah. You have at that moment, a group of people, a group of friends, a group of collaborators publicly deconstructing right that was a term that no people weren't familiar with at that time in the church for the most part so publicly deconstructing publicly transitioning between stages of faith between stages of consciousness mm -hmm. or who had already transitioned and now were marking and naming the journey for other people who were coming along and people who did that journey but were now naming it you know yeah. so as you look back now is that an accurate take on or, or one of the ways to think about it, like we were doing the things people do with a group of friends, but we were doing it publicly through podcasts and through getting the ideas out there. But it really was marking just that natural evolutionary step of faith and of consciousness at that time for the church and people who were listening to, you know, Christians and leaders at that time. Yeah, I think so. I think we were, we were reading the culture as we understood the popular culture, the, the nerdy sort of theological, philosophical, scientific <laughs> culture. And we're taking a lot of clues from that and said, look, this is as good of a f location in which to root one's spirituality as any other period of time, right? And just sort of believing that every religious tradition roots itself at a particular time. You could take any tradition you want, you know, na name one really from any religion and you'll find that its origin story locates it at a particular place on the planet with certain people participating in it at a certain time. And that becomes the, the DNA of that, of that movement. So we were saying, look, once you recognize that that's the case, that, that's what we referred to as deconstruction. And we'd spent lots of time in conferences describing deconstruction, not as demolition. So not as the opposite of constructing something, but it's this French word, this French philosophical word, which means to understand how it's constructed. So you would sort of imagine, you know, uh, the side of a building being clear so you could see all the architecture that goes into making the building. So deconstruction didn't mean demolition. It meant let's look at how the world is put together and decide if we want to put together a different kind of a world. So that was what we were trying to do and saying, Hey, this period of time is as good as any to use the tools of today. What I find kind of curious about that period, really even more, even earlier, like 2000, 2001, 2002, we started this official effort that we were calling emergent, which was borrowed phrase from both science, 
um, sort of emergent theory and from agriculture, which is emergent growth, the growth that sits just below the surface before it, you know, comes up. <clears throat> and we were borrowing from these two ideas that something's coming to the surface, something's coming into being, and we want to be as present with that as anything else. So we started emergent. And what we said was fundamentally, we want this to be a friendship and a friendship that can be oriented around conversation. Now that was in contrast to a other vision, which was a lot of the, uh, the more uh, typical churches and big mega churches, which were like, these are institutions and systems of which people can participate, but they don't feel like they're made up of people. But a friendship is really only made by the relationship amongst the peoples. And we want to use conversation as opposed to dictation. So what would an exchange produce in our spirituality, exchange between people as opposed to someone who has an answer and wants to deliver it? Now, what I find what I found interesting was then in, I don't know, whatever, 2004 or five or six, Facebook launches built around a notion of friends and exchange of conversation through posts, right? They borrowed the same language that the relationship wasn't a user to another user like you had on message boards or on other, other social media at the time. It was friends. How many friends do you have? And so I started to realize, yeah, we were, we were tapping into a sensibility, a sort of cultural moment of sense, uh, sensibility that was not just what we were talking about. It was, it was how people wanted to see a, uh, a nature of, a nature of relationships. And that was all really predicated on, for me, uh, on Jesus's teaching, uh, where he says, I, I don't call you servants. I call you friends because a friend, friend knows what one another are doing. You know, um, we, we started before there were like blogs. So we started this emergent stuff, you know, and we started a website called happenings at really we're in the room, literally right behind where I'm sitting now. I remember being in there with a friend of mine named Andrew Jones and we were conjuring up this idea. We said, you know, what would be great is if like we could have a website where whenever somebody was thinking something, no matter what it was, whatever was happening in their life, whatever was happening in their mind, if that could like go up on a website and then people could just go to that website, you could follow a whole bunch of people in what they're doing and what they're thinking, what's happening. And I don't know, like people could email us or they could text message. Text messages were very slow back then, you know, the T9 version. Um, and we'll put them up on this website called happenings.com. Um, and, and so we started this little website called Happening, and then Blogspot or one of these blogger yeah. things started. And then we're like, oh, we don't, we don't need to have that anymore. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I bring all that up just to say, like, first of all, we invented Facebook and secondly, we invent blogs and we don't get any credit for it. And we should be. <laughs> I, really for the people listening, there. I said Doug was way ahead of his time. He uh, was five years before Zuckerberg <laughs> before blogs. Yeah. What's the difference between those highly successful people that work on behalf of the Russians and me? I don't know. Uh, uh, yeah, but, but look, and, and this is what's true of any innovation, right? bunch of people have the same idea in the same moment. There's a, there's a moment in time where there's a consciousness that comes, comes to foot. So I'm not saying at all we were special. What I'm saying is we saw the very same things that other people saw. And we tried to deploy that for our purposes and other people with much bigger visions around those areas, they deployed it for theirs. So that's what was going on. And the 
the notion that we could be in present moment with Christian spirituality was for me one of the big drivers of this. Like you, I wasn't raised in Christianity, got into it when I was 16 years old. I have no familial affiliation to any version of it. So I didn't care. I wasn't trying to make Baptists better or talk about the failures of Methodists or (laughs) trying to avoid being a Catholic again. I didn't care about any of that. I was trying to be very present to my own life and experience and have a spirituality that could work for me. Cause like you, I'd gone to a Christian college and worked at a big mega church and was finding my way through that world, mm-hmm. trying to figure out like, okay, how did all of this get here? Mm-hmm. Um, and really influenced by postmodern thinkers who were saying, well, everything that exists, that's not just from the, in nature, anything that human beings have their fingers on, Human beings made it. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't just it didn't just come about. There's no there's no natural law or something. You just you just make it. And if you made it, you can unmake it, and you can make something else. Absolutely. So it was very aggressive in that in that sort of space and tone and and yeah, and so I, interesting yeah. how initially oftentimes the things that are the most liberating at first are destabilizing and scary. You know when people first as it registers on a body level and how you take things in because. There's so many, I feel like there's so many moments for people who are growing and evolving in their faith and just in, in general as human beings where you're learning something and it's like mm-hmm. all the pieces are, you're learning things, but then the, the clouds get tied together, mm-hmm. all the mm-hmm. lines. And in that moment, not only does it align, but when it aligns within you, you also know, oh, like now that I believe this, and I can't unsee it. That means I might not ever have that job. I, I probably won't be able to welcome there or this, this, I could do this and you kind of register it and it all hits you at once. Yeah. And I want to ask you about some of the resistance at that time. I, I, I want to, I do want to move forward and talk about some of your books, which I love and some of the, obviously some of the work you're doing now. But when I, like I have that moment in Bible college, right? This kid warns me like you can yeah. be known as emergent, right? I'm like, damn, I don't even know what that is. And then there was this sort of, you know, classical sort of low church, charismatic, you know, mega church. I was a part of in Orange County. I was living there at the time. I wasn't in Hawaii. My wife and I moved back for grad school and things. And one of the, within the first year I was there, they do a midweek symposium on is Rock Harbor becoming an emerging church? Yeah. Right. So now there's a symposium of leaders who are basically like, denouncing or this is why we're not, you yeah. know, and, and I, and what's interesting is I've never, I was never on staff at a church before my wife and I, who are co-founders of the church we lead here. I've never been on staff anywhere, never led, barely preached, but I, I, I had to for Bible college and I interned at this church I was at for four months. I really didn't do much. I kind of was just around, but one of the things they had me do was read position papers huh. on like, the church and homosexuality and the church. And I, one of them I think was like on rock on, on like the emerging church at that time. I'm just giving people some context for, yeah, right. You could say emergent at that moment and it would like cause visceral reactions to people. What were some of the concrete things that you and others were saying, were challenging, were critiquing and were offering as alternatives or a different vision of the future that people in the culture and the church were reacting to so strongly or so scared of. Yeah. And there were a few, a few particular triggers that what, what got us into the most hot water with the most people 
was the statements and the conviction that everything is questionable. Mm. Not, not that you don't believe everything, but everything should be held to the same standard as everything else. So the Bible should be questionable. If you want it to be, if you need it to be, I mean, should, there, there, there should be no, no talk rules. There should be nothing off limits. There's nothing that you can't um, uh, raise uh, alternative views around. So everything should be treated equally. Mm. Boy, that sent a lot of people into, into real, in, into a real tizzy with the notion that truth is not something that's absolute. Truth is a construct that human beings live by and truth is then formed by data, by facts, by opinions, by circumstances. And what we have to do is navigate all of that as human beings in ways that are good for us, good for the planet, good for all living beings. So truth should be something that we highly value, but that we don't treat as if it's a inarguable, removed, um, uh, uh, unchanging absolute. So, man, we spent a lot of arguments around the, the, the narratives of absolutes and, and what an absolute means and what basically is some kind of fundamentalism or better said, a foundationalism mm-hmm. that, that the notion of a foundation is a really good thing for building a building. Like you're on the 37th floor of your building. You want to make sure that foundation goes all the way down to, you know, some kind of bedrock. It's a great metaphor for a building and a great practice in building practices. It's a terrible metaphor for knowledge, right? Uh, Knowledge should be more like the boats in the harbor behind you than they are like the building on the shore. You don't want that boat stuck into the ground because the waves are going to beat the life out of it and destroy it, right? It's supposed to move. So we were arguing truth should be something more like a boat on the ocean than it should be a building on the shore. Well, you wouldn't think that would necessarily get somebody into a whole lot of trouble, but there are people lost their jobs over this. There are people that lost marriages over this kind of stuff. Like it was because we realized that fundamentalism, no matter how it's structured or what the fundamental is that you're holding to, oftentimes wants to have an inarguable truth that plays by a different set of rules. Now, we weren't saying that you couldn't order society, that you couldn't declare rights and wrongs, all the rest of this. We were just saying, when you do that, know that you're doing it on a boat, on an ocean, not on the land, on an unmovable or a perceived unmovable object, right? So that was a big one. Then from there came a whole lot of other things. Like uh, lots of us were convinced that the not only what the Christian scriptures say, but what the Christian calling is and what the Christian uh, response ought to be, that we should include everyone in our faith and our community, regardless of anything, <laughs> including their sexuality, including their past behavior. Now, you don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean you tolerate people acting in every possible way, but you don't exclude people mm-hmm. for anything. And, uh, a lot of us changed our thinking of, from our childhoods around homosexuality and began to understand that the, the teaching of the Christian Bible wants you to understand, you know, inclusion of, of people who are, who, who are gay and lesbian and transgender, just as much as you would include, you know, people that are from any other uh, uh, place of difference in your life. So homosexuality became an enormously 
catalytic uh, thing. For some people, it was women, if you can imagine. They didn't think women should be leaders. So, you know, they were getting... And then we're getting beat up around that. For some of them, some people, it was, uh, it was uh, political views. Uh, for some people, it was um, uh, like playing with other religions. We started a yoga studio in our church that I was pastoring at the time when all this emergent stuff was going on. And, you know, I ended up on CNN with a guy named John MacArthur on the other side. <laughs> MacArthur's talking about why yoga is from the devil. And I'm like, you should come to a yoga class, man. I think it could help you. I think you'd go a long way. So then we're being accused of like, you know, combining uh, other issues. So it didn't, it was, it, it was as if we were, we were suggesting a different way of being Christian, not just a different opinion about set of topics. And that's what we were doing. We were trying to say there's a different way. It's ultimately what led to, I guess, sort of the timeout timing out of the whole emergent project was, um, people just didn't want to put up with the grief. There were a lot of people who were part of our work or adjacent to the, all this emergent work that were just tired of people taking them to task for this stuff. And they're like, I don't know what Doug Padgett says about this stuff. I don't even know that guy. Like, why are you asking me that? I, I, I honestly don't know. You know, I just think it'd be better to have couches in our church than pews. Like, isn't that they get, fine? They get, called, yeah. they get called into the church office there. I swear I've never done yoga with Doug. I promise. And I would never. <laughs> I don't even like yoga. <laughs> so, you know, um, it, it caused, um, it caused a lot of, uh, a lot of cantankerous response and, uh, some of it's legitimate. Like these were legitimate arguments. And I will say the other thing we were going after very aggressively was Calvinism. Mm -hmm. Like some of us in particular thought that Calvinism as a theological and philosophical perspective was amazingly damaging to the human mind, to the human spirit and to Christianity. And we wanted there to be an alternative to it. Uh, some people in the emergent world were emergent Calvinists, so they weren't, but for those of, and I was in that group, I really think it's a troubling, I think it's a, a misconception that's troubling to a painful degree. And so we wanted to provide a real alternative for people out of that. And that fired up the Calvinists and, uh, the John Piper types of people. I don't know if you know who any of these people are, but yeah, there's a group. You know, I'm, I, I've followed all this stuff. Yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we were, we, we, we were going, uh, so, uh, I'm in Minneapolis. John Piper is in Minneapolis. That's right. They were going to do one of these conferences somewhere around 2008, 2010, 12, I don't know, something like this. Felt a little late to me that they were going to come you know, beating up on emergent people, but they were going to do one of their conferences to say to their people from the gospel coalition that emergent is a real problem. And we got word of this. And so I reached out to John and the people at the church, cause I'd been in the same denomination, another church I worked at Minneapolis is a small city and like, we know each other. And I said, you know, let, Hey, can we get together and just talk before you do this conference? And so John and three or four of his staff people came to lunch with someone named Tony Jones and the, he picked the restaurant, so we went to the Olive Garden. And over the breadsticks, um, you know, they said, hey, you know, tell us a little bit about what you do. And I described sort of what we do at Solomon's Porch. And uh, we were just down the street from John's house, frankly. And um, and uh, I get done talking about sort of what I think about things, kind of how we do life. John puts his elbows on the table, John Piper, looks across the table and says to me, 
After sitting here and listening to you talk, I can't imagine why anyone would ever want to listen to you preach. <laughs> and I said, really, really straightforward, you know, and I said, well, John, you sound an awful lot like my wife, um, but I, you know, I'm not sure either why people want to listen to me preach. He says, no, what I mean is you don't seem to believe in anything. You don't, there's nothing you would die for. And I said, yeah, I don't believe in a sacrifice narrative. I, I hope there's something I want to live for. You know, I, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find a way of life here. I'm not trying to find it. Picked up the bread. <laughs> shoved it down my throat and said, die heretic. So, so that was the kind of, you know, um, oh, it, man. And, uh, and I had a friend say to me, boy, I think you, and I did a lot of debates back then, friendly ones and sort of conflictual ones, like organized debates, like sit on a stage and have people ask questions. And um, people said, you should really do one with John. And, and I said, I don't think it would be interesting for me and John Piper to have a debate because you have to have enough in common for a debate to be robust. Hmm. It would be like we're having a debate about the difference of American football versus soccer. Mm. Like that's not an interesting debate. That's yeah. just people championing two different sports that use some of the same words. They could both be called football and they both have a ball and they run around in a field, but we're kind of doing really different things here. Um, so I don't think it would be all that interesting. And, and that's part of what was happening, right? People were feeling like what we were saying at emergent village and emergent life and all this was not just a difference of opinion, but a totally different way of doing this spirit, this Christian yeah. spirituality. Now, now curiously, as you say, a lot of those things that we were all talking about and advocating for are now all over churches that used to hold us to, to you know, said, said, it, but that's exactly what every innovation should do, exactly. right? That's a sign of a good innovation. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's always one of my thoughts of like, even with the imagery of a conversation, it was a conversation that was heard and continued to ripple throughout, you know, the country and beyond. So the things like, like people, for people listening, the things Doug's talking about, and they were saying back then where they were getting so much grief and there was always the next drama of John Piper's mad at you or whoever. And I always just thought it was hilarious, but the things you guys, and obviously other people too, but the things you were all saying, guys like Rob, who always consciously was like, you guys were obviously had shared sensibilities, but he's like, I'm yeah. not a part of that label, yeah. even though, you know, he's still doing similar things in terms right. of what he was doing, right? right? Yes, it's fair. But the things they were all saying were, and, and taking hits for and walking away with arrows in the back and having it affect their relationships truly was pioneering and making a way for now 15 years later things that are taken for granted things that are said in books that are sold at target are truly made possible because of the work sacrifice energy love innovation and courage you all had back then that's why i just when people talk about deconstruction now like i told you i laugh because i'm like this is fine now even though some people are still resistant to that idea that you can actually grow and evolve in your yeah. faith but i just look back and I, those were fun times because that was such an exciting time for me to grow. Mm -hmm. And you guys were all like some of the main voices who really were speaking that future into existence for people like me to keep going in. And well, it was nice of you to say. And it was also about it was not only the way of thinking, but it was the way of practice, right? A lot of us were trying to say, 
how we run our communities or churches or ministries or organizations really matters. So I spent sort of half of my writing life, you know, those 11 books, writing about how we do communities and the other half about how we think about the theologies and the, and the, the faith that we want to hold because both of those matter. And it was almost like you could get away with dealing with one side or the other. You could be theologically adventurous as long as you were methodologically conservative or the other way around. But if you started to be progressive on both arenas, <laughs> theologically progressive and methodologically progressive, you didn't have any friends left, right? You were sort of alone because, um, uh, you know, you just sort of, you, you let go with both hands and now you're in a free fall and dis- disconnected from both of those. So that's, that, that was another big, big piece that people were concerned about was that it was, you know, wasn't rooted in anything. Yeah. That was, that was irony being that you guys were all formed and educated enough to know the roots that go back historically to the early church and to be grounded in the broader great tradition as a whole, not just the fundamentals expression from the 20th century. That's just ironic. It's like, you're not rooted. It's like, no, all of you really were informed (laughs) enough to be rooted in the great tradition. You know what I yeah, mean? I do. Um, yeah. No, we would get that a lot, right? Where we'd say like, uh, I, I think the thing you're critiquing us on is just a late 19th, early 20th century argument that I'm not interested in any longer. Yeah, we were either yeah, pre post that. The last part about practice is a good segue because I want to talk about your former, the church you started and led for a long time, Solomon's Porch. But before I, before I, we talk about that, I just want to tell you a couple of funny stories of along my way with your work yeah. and your books. You know, when I come in, so I come into a Bible college at like 21 or 22. I've barely been in church at that point. And the, the, the Bible college I'm at is obviously very like rapture. You know, they believe in the rapture and I would sure. hear stuff about it and I didn't know enough to challenge it, but I just intuitively was like, this can't be the story. There's no right. way this is the, where the universe and this cosmic story is moving towards. This just can't be, you know? And I just kind of held that intention as I kept growing. And as I'm like reading, you know, that summer, you know, all the work and my mind's just being so blown. It's just the best thing. It was reading a Christianity worth believing. I was at like a pool at my old apartment complex in Costa Mesa in Orange County, where because of all the different work I was reading, it finally clicked this vision of new creation, the future, we're partners, we're building for this future. It's all moving towards healing. Like that whole beautiful, powerful image of the universe moving towards healing that we see in the scriptures clicked. And as it all clicked, my heart sunk into my stomach because I was like, damn it, Kev, like, are you really, it's those moments like, are you really going here? But like you, I never, when I was a kid, like I wasn't searching for God. I wasn't searching for Jesus. I just wanted to know what was real. And that desire still drives me to this day. That's all I'm doing is I'm still on that journey. And it was just one of those moments where it clicks. And while it's exciting and liberating, I'm like, whoa, like this really puts, it was my first feeling of like, wow, this really puts me at odds with my professors or everything they're saying or the institution. And another funny thing with so many weird interactions that you guys had with you know like that john piper conversation or this guy's on youtube talking about why doug Paget's this right there's just countless things like that and a friend of mine who i told like oh i'm about to like do this interview with doug Paget, who knew me when i was younger and was always terrified of how much i read all of you guys like we're best friends and he was just like 
he would send me position papers on the emerging church. Like, bro, like you should check this out and contemplative prayer. Like, are you sure you should open yourself up? Yeah. I think and, Richard Rohr. And, and when I told him we were doing this, he, he brought up this old conversation you had with like one of those types of guys who was trying to push you to like take some definitive stance on like who's going to hell and not. And uh-huh. one of those conversations, the guy was pushing you and you're like, well, when we die, we will have some kind of interaction with God. And then, you know, you were saying something like that. And my friend's like, oh yeah, ask Doug, is that, is that it? We're just going to have an interaction with God. Like we don't even know what comes after. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he still remembers that. He's like, oh, is that just, it's just an interaction with God, right? That's it. That's all we know. Well, in fact, you probably even know less than that. I mean, that's the craziest part, right? Like, the, you know, the, the level to which religious people, especially Christians, act as if they have access to some kind of uh, information about whatever life is going to be like after this one. Look, that is the most super sketchy argument of them all, right? Just like, from where are you getting that? Uh, even your, you know, full death to return to life stories that you want to use in the Bible. They don't even give you an indicator of that, right? It is. Um, and the idea that there's uh, a clarity around some of these things, it's, uh, you know, I write in that Christianity worth believing book, this Mark Twain quote that Mark Twain says, it ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. Mm. And that idea that there's things people think are for sure, and then they're like, oh my gosh, that's not a for sure. That's the thing. And, and that's the hubris that exists inside of religion, and especially inside of Christianity, that we choose to double down. I've talked, I was talking to a conservative person the other day, and they will double down on what the afterlife is about who's where, who's what, I mean, from where they get this is really speculative to me. But then I said something about love being the, the guiding force. And they said, yeah, I think love is just a bit of a generic word. I don't even know what you mean by love. Oh, so you can't understand what it means to love, but you can understand what the afterlife is going to go when all of your Christian teaching is, I mean, God is love and you're to love your neighbors. You love yourself. And, but who's my neighbor. And then here's a parable about it. And from beginning of Jewish scriptures all the way through, it's just a love fest. And to that, you throw your hands in the air and be like, well, don't hold me accountable to understanding love, but I can describe to you about the afterlife in such terms that if you don't say this sentence versus that sentence, I'm sure you're going to go to this place. That is, that is a kind of uh, certainty that, that I've just never really understood. Like why we, why we approach this life with a sense of mystery and the afterlife with a sense of certainty that's interesting is so befuddling to me um and i'm asked about that a lot and what i realized i was in one of those debates that i mentioned to you that i, that I was in and one of them was about hell because there was a period of time when um i don't know the fundamentalists were really all up in arms about heaven and hell and they thought it was one of the places that would prove that people like us were heretics right because mm-hmm they're convinced that the Bible says such and such. And if you don't believe in hell, then you can't believe the Bible. And it turns out, you know, a lot of that content that they hold from the Bible wasn't from there at all. It's from a vision of Dante's, you know, poetics uh, of, of the afterlife in order to punish the, the Pope at the time. But 
I was in one of these debates and uh, it, I, it was in a very, it was in a room that was full of people who believed in the traditional stated views of hell. So the view that was held by the person I was debating, I mean, it was 99 to one and there were about 400 people there. So it may have been more than that. I may, I may have been the only one who held my view. <laughs> and uh, um, I felt it was going my direction. Uh, like, cause the argument, you know, it was, it was going pretty well and I could feel the tension in the audience and I could see the tension in the person I was debating. And it dawned on me that when they hear me saying there is no hell, they hear me saying there's no way for God to make things right. Mm. Interesting. They are hearing me say you were wronged. You were harmed. You were hurt. You were abused. You were sinned against. And there's no God that's ever going to do anything about it. Mm. You're on your own. Tough luck. So it all of a sudden realized, oh, yeah, yeah, this is not about describing the afterlife. This is about how do I live this life and what do I do with the pain that I've experienced here? That's why they bring up stuff about Adolf Hitler. Where's Adolf Hitler go? That's why they bring up things about, you know, harmful actions that people do to one another. About one another. They're, they're not doing it as a rhetorical argument. It's actually a deep philosophical personal argument to which I think the gospel has a beautiful response. It's just not retribution, right? Judgment is not, it never makes things right. There is no punishment you could deliver that would equal out some balance. You have to have another view of the world in which reconciliation and healing happens without having to have some sort of bloodletting that will somehow equal out some scale of justice. But if you don't get to that issue, then hell is really about something else. So it, it, what I learned in all of these debates and all of the attacks, and Brian McLaren actually was very, very insightful on this. He said, you know, look, every critic has a gift for you. There's something the critic sees that you don't see. So listen to the critic for the gift that they're delivering to you. It's a very uh, yeah, mature yeah. and integrated sort of way. So, yeah. And look, a lot of us, we didn't have enough, we didn't have a sophisticated alternative for the things we were tearing down at the time. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. So if you say, well, this view that you hold about such and such um, isn't sufficient, you begin to realize most of us don't hold our views um, simply for their logic. We hold them for their function and what they do for us. And once you start pulling these things away from people, you're not just pulling away their logic, you're pulling away the result of that logic in their life. And now you get a, dis a disequilibrium. Now, sometimes that's really important. I mean, that's what therapists do for a lot, for some people, right? They, they're like, we're going to help you construct a different way of organizing your thinking in your life and your patterns because these other ones aren't working. So, but if you're not careful or if careful is the wrong word, if you're not aware that that's what you're doing to somebody, you can really... Um, not see about the, the, the kind of impact uh, that it has. Yeah. I will say on scale, for the most part, most people are tormented by these beliefs that exist in their head more than they are served by them. So for a lot of people, dropping some views of exclusion and a cruel God and hell and all this, that's just good news that they can be done with that and don't have to be tormented by those ideas any longer. 
but they do serve a purpose there. You, you don't end up with that. That hole doesn't just sit there. It gets filled. It gets filled with something else. I'm, I'm fond of believing that people don't end their beliefs. They swap them one for another. So you have to help someone find another way to think about something, not just stop thinking about something. Yeah. And belief systems, like with what you're saying, the attachment, the personality, the identity stuff, belief systems house and provide shelter for the ego. So if you challenge the system or the beliefs, it is it, it registers as a personal attack and a threat to the very sense of self at that time. That's why it can get so, like, I know there's more happening here, but I also get it because of what that's done for you over time, you know? Right. Um, yeah. That, and, and that's, that's the sensitive side to, to this kind of work, you know, yeah, <clears throat> but, and it's hard because you can be in a mixed group, sometimes even in mixed marriages where one person the idea is extremely damaging and to another person, the idea functions in a way that's really life giving to them. So boy, what do you do? You know, this is, this gets, this becomes real, uh, real personal, interpersonal stuff. And that's something we were always talking about in the emergent world that our critics, I tell you, man, they were coming at us as if this was like, you know, a senior level symposium. And uh, well, one of these people, a guy named Don Carson, uh, wrote a lot of mean stuff about us. He was a theologian at Trinity uh, Seminary in Chicago. And uh, he was coming out with a book from a publisher that I had previously published, published with. And so I got a copy of it and I reached out to Don and I said, Don, you know, you talk a lot about our church, Solomon's Porch in this book. And you, you glad to have you critique what we're, what we're up to, but you're in Chicago. We're here in Minneapolis. It's, it's we're close. How about if you just come up for a weekend and spend a weekend with us before your book comes out and see if there's anything you want to change, you know? Mm -hmm. And so he wrote back and said, Doug, thanks so much for the invitation. Um, I'm a theologian. I'm not at all interested in the interpersonal narratives that go on here. Like, I don't need to see you. I can read your website. I see what you've said. That's all the data I need. Mm. And I thought, okay, maybe if you're just like a, I don't know, like a theoretician or something, but you're teaching pastors how to be pastors and your response is, I don't actually need to go see the very people and talk to them and be in that world. He saw that as losing objectivity. I saw it as finding the truth, right? So these are really different, these are really different approaches to the world. And, And I think it's sort of why it describes why he was in the world he was in and why some of us were wanting to be out of that world and be inside of a different world in which the personal story and narrative, which was another thing you would hear in the, in the emergent world a lot, was talking about the narratives that drive us were incredibly important because we actually saw this as people work. Yeah, that, that, uh, the story of conflicting ideas, even within a marriage, I remember at that point in two, I think it was probably 2008 was when I was first with like one or two friends, you know, that's kind of how it starts like reading different things. Like, dude, what? Like, that's all we're talking about and we're doing it. And my wife who I had known forever, we met when we were 16, you know, we got married a year or two before was like, what is Kevin talking about? You know, cause she had more experience in the church than I did. And, and for her, it wasn't like some attack, but she's like, what is this? Like there were concerns, you know, where she's like, is Kevin okay? Is this bad? Is, should he not be going here? I said, babe, look, I'm like, you know me, you know, my heart for people. I'm growing. I said, look, there is a conference in New Mexico 
called the emerging church that Richard Rohr's throwing at the time, right? So this is 2008. You know, it was like him, Brian McLaren, Shane Claiborne, whoever was there. Yeah. I said, babe, let's drive out there together. Let's go to it. Because my wife's very like in person. You know, like if I see it, oh, it's all good. No big deal. I don't even care. You know? Yep. Yep. And so we drove out there and did it. And first of all, people don't know when you go to Richard Rohr things, especially back then, it was like all old white Catholic people. Yeah, it's not like sure. young, scary, like granola-ish hippies or hipsters. I'm like, it's all old white people, you know, which already makes you feel safe, you know, when you're yeah, worried right, about right. where things are going for some people. <laughs> but that was the thing, even for that, like she, there was a concern of my husband feels called to be a pastor, but he seems to be at odds with the church we're a part of. And for me, it was the trust and the envelope of friendship and relationship and knowing each other and now my heart. I'm like, babe, it's all, you know this is all translating into concrete love for my neighbor. So mm-hmm. on one level, who cares? But on another level, it's all really important work that we're doing because this is what's, this is just where my life's taking me. Yeah. Um, I'm going to skip because we, you know, we stayed there longer than I anticipated, which, you know, I just, because I can't help myself just going back yeah. to those times, you know. <laughs> well, I'm not in any hurry. You ask yeah. anyone. Here's something I I've seen in you personally and you know, especially someone like Brian or, or other folks where I'm like, regardless of, you know, this person, let's demonize them for this, right? Let's ch- let's, let's critique them. But then when I would hear you guys over the years, I'm like, but they both just seem so cool and chill. And like, they're actually four people. I'm like, mm-hmm. this is not a cynical person this is not somebody who's just over it and on the sidelines of life hurling ideological Mm. bombs at religious Mm. people this is a person like when you say half of your writing is also about practice this is a person who is giving their life spending their energy to actually do the journey of jesus for the sake of others for Mm. on behalf of the world especially with those on the margins taken into consideration. I'm like these, especially Brian. I'm like, dude, he's like the, you know, the most sweetest. <laughs> that's right, truly. Like, dude, he's like the most pastoral, like kind of, you know, he just, he's, he, that's who, that's how he is, you know? With that said, like, and that's something that's so hopeful and I think is so amazing where 15, 20 years later, you still seem to have a vitality. You still seem to be excited about being a part of this unfolding universe and the church and, you know, as a citizen and taking all those things so seriously and also doing it in a way in the wisdom of the lightness of also being like, but who knows, you know, like who knows on one level, what do you right? Your work has, you've, you know, from Solomon's porch to writing to vote common good um, here's what I would ask now, since that time, say 15, 20 years ago, what do you see in the church now that is hopeful? You know, what do you see where you're like, okay, yeah, we still got some work to do, but I see people saying this. I see people doing this. And this is where I can see the emergence and the life and like things are growing. What are some of those expressions that you see where you're like, man, like this is, this is good stuff, you know, and I can see that. Yeah, I have been hopeful and and wanting to to see and, and trusting that I just don't have access to it anymore. That there are people right now who are exploring and creating and pushing back on you know things they've heard from before, whether that's from 
people like me or others, a, a new way. I like, I'm trusting that there's a lot of creative development happening in Christian spirituality. I don't see as much of it right now. And that's a little concerning. It's like, are we in a fallow period or what's, what's going on here? Like, um, uh, I see some of it happening in the social spaces. I see some of it happening online and some of that. Um, I'm glad to, to rank myself in the community of the, you know, stodgy, we never did it that way crowd now and be like, mm. I do a lot of online work. I mean, I'm online every single day and run conferences online and podcasts and video streams and webinars and videos. And, you know, I have a, literally have a studio in my house. So I do this online stuff all the time. It's not the same thing as like hand holding and walking with people and sharing air and touching their, touching their, their life and them touching yours and being in with them. So, so I, I don't know, I see a lot of good development that way, which I'm sure is somehow something better than what I can sort of conjure that up, conjure that up to be. Um, I, but I do think that there's an awakening around a deeper level of systemic issues that's that those of us 20 years ago knew were important, but we didn't have the skill sets to engage with around issues of economics and race and violence. And, and that, that seems really good to me um, that, that uh, I've learned so much in the last 10 years um, in all of those areas. So I think there's a lot of work that's um, that's being done. And I hope it continues. I hope it continues to lean, lean forward. You know, th there's always this um, need to trans, uh, to, uh, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? To, uh, to get beyond your, uh, to get beyond your past. Um, to transcend. Thank you. Thank you. To transcend your past. Um, but then as Ken Wilber says, you, if you only transcend and you don't include that past, then you then you're going to stay angry. So you have to transcend to be free and you have to include it to not be angry mm -hmm. and find a way to sort of reconcile it. So that's really important that we do that. And then it's also important that we really create these new, new, new ways and new pathways mm -hmm. and a new way of being. And, and I'm hopeful that's happening. Uh, it's, I think there's a lot of really good work being done on race and how we think about one another, because I think race is a very dynamic quality in society, especially in the United States. And it, it's morphing our understanding of it and how we need to respond to it. Uh, so that's, that's, that's the most hopeful piece that I see. And it's not only, rooting in the civil rights movements and the abolition of slavery movements and so on in the reconstruction period. It's, it's, there's something new that's actually happening. That's talking about race in a very 21st century moment and way that includes that past. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and also uh, begins to transcend it. So I think there's some really good work uh, that, that's yeah. happening and that's happening in that area. And um, I, I still, you know, I still long for there to be more science in our spirituality. I think the new sciences and new spirituality need to have a little bit, need to have more, uh, more dance time together. Uh, so I see some people doing that kind of work and that seems super exciting, uh, super exciting to me. And I, I've made a move, you know, in from like in, from congregational work, like working in a community into a, a lot more public space and working on what, what a person of Christian faith, civic 
responsibility is and how should they live in the world. So I, that has had a very political edge to it after the election of Donald Trump, who I saw as a, a unique threat to the well-being of this planet and all who live on it and thought that it was a call of people of conscience and faith to do all that we could to express ourselves in our in our constitutional democracy and make sure that that was over as fast as possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I've spent a lot of time and energy in that subset of what it means to be a person living in this country at this time. And, and I want, I want to, I want to like ask you a specific question about that even more vote common good. So a lot of the work Doug's been doing, you can look at votecommongood.com. So when you talk about, organizing civic responsibilities public action you know people in office it's it's funny to hear you say to talk about trump or an individual as a legitimate threat to the planet but that's actually true you know what i'm saying it's like well it, that sounds almost like sci-fi he is a threat to the planet you're like well but based on the space he occupied he really was now here's what i think is helpful for people to see you know when as somebody who's been a spiritual leader, guide, pastor, writer, all those things, I think we don't do one thing, we do many things. But the many things, they're actually one thing. And that's something for the leadership within our church, the language we use, we're like, it's just, it's all one thing. Yep. The parenting, intentional parenting, my wife's work as a therapist, the stuff I do for the congregation, being present enough to actually take in the moment with my kids sitting with people and suffering creating this it's all one thing yes you know now with that in mind what is the work that you've that you really focus on with vote common good and how is that usage of your energy a natural continuation like how how do you describe the continuity of that work and the work you've done pastorally and explicitly within congregations right if it's all one thing how is that a natural outflowing a new vehicle through which your life is coming through now? Yeah, that's a, that, that's a great question. And it's funny because to me, it, it all does feel like one thing. Um, and um, it feels like a continuation. Um, and, you know, the, the subtitle to this book that you mentioned, A Christianity Worth Believing, is a hope-filled open-armed, alive and well faith for the left out, the left behind, and the let down in us all. And I've always thought that the story of Christianity and Jesus's path to the way of human life really is, you know, a, a right now faith that's, you know, here and alive and well and in this, in this moment and is especially for those who feel left out, left behind, and let down by it all. So I've always felt that that's the kind of work that I'm doing, right? Is the, I, I have a friend who, who grew up in the church and he does very similar work. Uh, his name is Peter. And Peter says, it always bothered me when I was a kid, when we'd sing the first, second and fourth verse, I always felt bad for the third verse that never got sung. The one that was left out. So it's translated into just, I run an entire you know project of my life thinking about those who've been left out. Mm-hmm. And, so the work that we do at Vote Common Good is to try to give to these Christians who someone told them to blend their Christian spirituality with right-wing republicanism. And a lot of people think this, 
They think to be a Christian, especially a Jesus following, God loving, you know, faith of Bible believing, Christ centered <laughs> Christian, that you're also going to be a conservative Republican. Mm. They are they are welded together. And then an awakening happens and people are saying, Oh, it can't be anymore. I cannot if I have to choose between giving up my faith or giving up my political allegiance, uh, I'm going to, you know, if, if those are welded, I'm going to give them both up. I'm really concerned about the number of people who've said, I have to leave Christianity because I cannot support Republicans any longer. Mm-hmm. Like why that's a thing that those two got wedded together. Is, so what we're trying to do is help people to differentiate. Now they can choose to stay a Republican if they want sure, to. Sure. In the current situation, I'm not sure why someone would, but <laughs> as long as they have the freedom and this thing called human agency, right? As long as they have the freedom to do so, uh, that's what's important, that you can live a life full of your faith. And if you're like me, that's going to compel you to resist the kinds of things that's, that some people are wanting to have happen in our world. And I don't think in all the times is our national political conversation all that urgent, Sometimes it's kind of run of the mill, right? And there's people who can care for it and they can think about it and they ought to. And then there are moments when it becomes really important. And I believe that 2016 and again, the insurrection on January 6, 2021 are reminders that we are currently in a moment of urgency. Uh, It's damaging to our civic life. It's really harmful to some people. Uh, it's damaging to the church. So we do this work and I've had to reconcile this, you know, like I, I, I do not hate Donald Trump. Um, I, I really do believe that everybody is the beloved child of God, the full light of the world and salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. And we would at events that we would do, we, I would have a little partner events and I'd say this every time, but like Donald Trump is the beloved child of God, the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But not every light of the world should be the president of the United States. And this man is totally incapable of doing that job in a way that's going to help anybody. So he needs to let his light shine somewhere else and get out of the White House. Because that, that recognition, right, that you can love a person, for, but they shouldn't Absolutely. be doing that thing. They shouldn't be doing that role. Mm. You know, you don't look at a sweet little baby and declare it and, it's, and proclaim its full glory as the beloved child of God and then ask it to cook you dinner. So there's just things that don't fit certain times of life and certain things don't fit certain capabilities. And, uh, you know, uh, so trying to reconcile with that, right. And, and, um, and trying to live, having lived, you know, a lot of my, all my adult life, trying to be in this pattern of inclusion and, you know, as the, as the, Proverb, or as the Psalm says that, you know, blessed is the one who does not uh, walk in step with the wicked or sit in the way of the sinner or sit in the company of the mocker. Mm. That's been a bit of a life uh, project for me. I, I don't want to sit in the company of the mockers. And man, there's an entire industry of people that will mock one another. I mean, there's just a whole pathway for that. Mm. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm fond of Fred uh, Rogers, Mr. Rogers, and he has this saying that's attributed to him that if you knew someone's entire story, you wouldn't be able to help but love them with your whole heart. Mm-hmm. So 
Um, I think that's true. I think all of these things are true, but that doesn't mean that every person should be doing every one of the things and all the times. And some things should be open to everybody, like pastoring a church, good with anybody doing it. Uh, speaking up in a sermon, I think everyone should do it. Uh, you know, uh, t- telling your friend the truth, obligation of all of us. Um, you know, being my neurosurgeon, nope. Being the president of the United States, most people, but not some. And so that that's a, you know, that's a, a path that I have, I've picked and, and I've wondered all along, like, man, is this, am I off the path of what I was on before? Is this closer to, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know about you or any of the rest of the people listening to this, but if anybody else can figure out how to know what path you're on, God bless you. Because it's, um, I think in retrospect, what, it's much clearer to look back and see what path you walked rather than to look forward and, uh, and down and, and know exactly what path you're on. Yeah, yeah, and that's, there's a lot of, there's so much good stuff there. You know, one of the ways I thought about that insurrection moment at the Capitol was when I was young, there's this, uh, there's this line from this old 50 Cent song when he was still making music, when he was still making music and not doing as much business, where he said, when he talks about movies and he says, I watch gangster flicks and I root for the bad guy, but I turn it off at the end because the bad guy dies. So, you know, in every bat, in every gangster movie, there's like this arc of this is the life and we got it. And then it like Goodfellas, it starts falling apart and everyone's snitching on each other and people are dying. And then Casino, like this is the life. And then Sharon Stone strung out and, you know, per- like, like there's always the same arc. And I kind of thought about the insurrection moment as a similar arc like that for, for a lot of the sort of evangelical white nationalism and kind of like the unholy matrimony of all that where moral majority, you know, you're looking back 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it's like, Christians, America, moral majority, we got Reagan, we got our guys, Bush, it's like, we're here protecting the purity of things, we're going to keep our kids safe, and then we're going to like, you know, we're going to keep going, and it's almost like they had their high moment, they had their big leaders, and to me, that insurrectionist moment was Hmm. actually instead of this leading you to just ride the chariot all the way to heaven, you know, while protecting your children along the way. This is Sharon Stone strung out at the end of Casino of like, oh, the girl who's who know, knows everybody and everyone loves and everyone sees as like the ideal girl. In the end, because of her lifestyle, she's not resting with grandkids, living an easy life. She's strung out and it all went bad. To me, the insurrection was like that form of the faith strung out in the end of like this is where it actually led us there was an entire historical trajectory religious political economic racial that all came together as one thing or what we always thought was supposed to be one thing right the church republican all that stuff and it didn't lead us to the promised land it led us to this because there was a historical momentum that made that made this make sense right now you know what I mean? Yeah. I've always, I always just kind of thought about it in that kind of a way as I would sit back. And yeah, I think I asked that question about vote common good because that whole, the many things is one thing is, okay, yeah. well, you know, Doug's not pastoring anymore. I'm like, but he still is following Jesus. He's still in tune with the spirit. He still has the foundation of love just as present within him and drawing him forward as he was in his congregational life, the vehicle through which that's happening now is just different. Like that's a gift to offer younger people as a pastor to see it's all one thing. 
this is what faithfulness and love and uh, self-sacrificial life looks like for you and for them. And it's actually all part of one thing as we have this role as co-creators in this world, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So I always see that. Yeah. When I see your work or other people doing things after pastoring, I'm like, that's just where their life is. It's the same thing. The same thing. And it's a real test for all of us, right? Because what you realize when you make a shift like this, and I did away from doing the kind of work I was doing at Solomon's Porch to this other exclusively national kind of organizing work, you start to ask yourself, Oh, was all of that stuff that I said and did and believe, was that just part of the job? Was that just part of the job description? Because it's hard to know, right? You don't, you, you, you tell yourself that's not what it is, but I don't know. Uh, when you're still in that situation, you, you, it's like a fish in the water, right? The fish doesn't know what life outside the water would be like. So once you get out of it, now you really get it. To, it's, it's, it's a new level of recognition to say, oh, no, this is who, this is actually who I am. Or, no, that part of it, that was just stuff that I uh, did because it was part of that job. I didn't know it, but I'm comfortable with that, that that's what it is. Um, And then, you know, when you're out of it, then there's days where I think, am I just like playing to type here? Like, do do I do all of this that I still do? Because I still, you know, I still talk about faith all the time. I'm trying to advocate for it. I'm trying to be a public evangelist. I want people to find the everlasting path that leads to life that Jesus is talking about and all this stuff. And um, I'm like, well, is that just because I'm stuck and that's all I know how to do? Yeah, I, I don't know. So these kinds of, you know, reflections are, I think, part of what it means that you're taking seriously your your maturation into the next into the next stages um, and knowing, well, no, it's just because this is truly who I am or is this because I'm just stuck? I don't know. Um, I, but when you, once you let go of judgment uh, as a, as a working practice, you know, you stop judging, you can just take things on a little differently, right? Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe I can let my attachment go to the, to having the right answer to this. Mm-hmm. And if I can, then whatever the answer is, that's what I need to come to grips with. As my friend Tom likes mm-hmm. to say, the truth is your friend, feel free to spend some time with her, you know, um, she's going to treat you well. So figuring out what is, like you said earlier, you know, what's real, uh, that's the, that's the pursuit sort of all the time. And in the, in the moments of, of threshold crossing, transitioning from one period of time to another and crossing a threshold and realizing that something now is behind you and something new is in front of you, that kind of moment, that's where, that's where the, the, the real, the real question comes. And so the, these are the kinds of things that I'm thinking about uh, yeah, all the time. And no, that's great. Um, yeah, you know, what, that was actually a question. To the world and what's your stuck pattern? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's so good. You know, after, I mean, I could, I could keep doing so much. I, I want to end. I want to end with this question. You, when you look as a person whose life, whose concrete life has transcended beyond a particular pastoral role at a congregation in a congregation obviously you still care love believe in the church however you would describe all that when you look at young leaders we we talk it, it was kind of within your answer a little bit about where do you see hope right now or what do you find hopeful in expressions of the faith when you look at younger leaders emerging within the church 
what do you really want to see more of? You know, when you say, oh, here's, I think areas, as you look back, you're like, this is so much room for growth and so much room for innovation here. So much focus on this. Like what gets you excited when you see the possibility of people continuing to lead churches, concrete congregational communities into the future in this particular moment we're in right now? I think I'm the biggest fan and find the most hope in people who are, are as present as they can be, that their mm. current moment is what they take most seriously. Mm. Mm. Um, of the three competitions, the, the future, the past, and now, <clears throat> people that are in that now moment, that they give as much attention to that. And I, I don't just mean like this very second, but this period, you know, whatever, whatever it is that feels past and whatever it is that feels future for you, that, that you're taking seriously what, where things are right now. And, and, and the leaders that have a sense that their communities are cared for through creativity, that, that creativity is not an exception. Creativity is the thing that we do as human beings, as co-creators with God, that the the consistent creative process um, is is meaningful. When, when I see that, there's something something sparks, right? Um, uh, so, and and that uh, for me and other other people have their own histories, but for me, that required artists and people whose passions were oriented around. Uh, making, creating something. So musicians, visual artists, uh, actors, that, that kind of, that kind of thing, the, uh, the imaginatives of our society. Uh, some people, they, they bring that with them and they, they need to find other things that are more rooted and grounded or whatever, but, um, people that can make stuff out of nothing, uh, you know, a painter, a poet, a musician, incredible to me, right. That something was in them and then it came out and manifest in some way. And now it exists in the world. That's the valuable stuff because it's very, it's very now. I just think a lot of things in our lives, especially our churches should have a perishable date on them. I mean, a few things should last for a really long time, but not most things. <laughs> I don't know, like they should, you know, it's, it's, it's okay to disagree with yourself, with your past self. You know, it's, it's totally fine. Um, you, you're, you're, you're not held to, to your previous best expressions of yourself. Yeah. Oh man, that's so good. And I don't know if you know that, but the name of our church out here is Imagine. Huh. That, yeah, that we started in 2013 in the living room of a house we rented when we first moved back to Honolulu. And a big part of even that word, you know, comes from, you know, Brueggemann's pioneering work. It's crazy to think prophetic imagination was written like in 78. Yeah. But that the prophet is the one who imagines an alternative future. And then as a result, invites the social possibilities in the present, you know, you yes. imagination comes before implementation. And it's dope to hear you say that. Cause I think a lot of the language that wasn't familiar to people before who had any experience with the faith of being present, like there was a joke where people would be like, Oh, Christine or Kevin, they're gonna talk about being present. We're like, but that's sort of the thing. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like, what else are we doing if we're not actually here in the moment, taking in whatever yeah. it is, if it's all one thing? And so I think the imaginative, and I've always just thought about my own work in terms of 
design and creativity, you know, and I think the perishables thing is so good. Cause I'm like those, that storytelling thing we did, that video we made, that made sense based on the stage Imagine was in or where we're at. But right now that wouldn't be helpful. It's actually this because of where we are. And I think a lot of the freedom to create, recreate and allow things to die comes from the wisdom and the vision that you talked about before, which, which is the deconstructible nature of everything. You're like, everything yeah. has a historical social starting point. Nothing has magically been etched into the universe in terms of like, that's how it's always been done. I was like, no, a bunch of guys in the fourth century said that. Yeah. yeah. And it was helpful that created some riverbanks and the larger flow of our faith tradition but we're not supposed to recreate that. We're supposed to go back and get in tune with the same spark and allow that to build the fire to build that. Like that was one of the quotes that starting Imagine, which it was, a, I think it was a Picasso quote where he's like, you honor your grandfather, not by wearing his hat, but by having grandchildren. Yes. You know, the point is, oh, well, they did that. I better put the same hat Doug has on right now because yeah. he did it. It's like, no, the point is my grandkids are going to do things and say things he would never do or say, maybe not even approve of, and it doesn't matter, but it's still within the same trajectory, legacy, and, yeah. and motivated by the same spirit. So, oh, man, this was regardless awesome. of the, the fact that the questions were different from most others, this was more of like, you know what? I'm going to do this the way I want. Wait, but you, have a like you have a standard set of questions for everybody else? Not standard set of questions, but it's like, okay, this is the work the person's doing now. You know, here's oh, the yeah. book. I'm like, when I know this history, I'm going to take sure. the freedom I have yeah. and my human agency that Doug taught me about to also do this. So, yeah, you know, yeah, I was I, I was sitting here thinking earlier uh, when you were doing the introduction that um, I wrote this book that I have out now. <clears throat> it's not a to pitch the book, which would be fine if people bought it. Uh, <laughs> but it's called Outdoing Jesus, which basically is the seven miraculous signs from the Gospel of John. And the argument is that the, that Jesus is portrayed here as the human one, the Son of Man, and built around these seven miraculous signs as the way of humanity. So they're not. Mm. God actions, their human actions. And then how are we currently doing and outdoing those based on Jesus teaching? Those who believe in me will do the works I'm doing and do even greater works than these John 12. So all that to say, one of the conversations that I had for a podcast, but I was using selfishly to get some insight uh, around the gospel of John was from someone named John Shelby Spong mm -hmm. and John Shelby Spong uh, was a, Episcopal bishop and theologian. And he had, when I was in seminary, he was in the category of this group of theologians that we were told not to listen to. Of course. Uh, so I don't know if you know who John Shelby Spong is, but um, yeah. So, you know, he and um, Marcus Borg and Dominique Cross and so on, they had this Jesus seminar project that they were doing. And, and so I, anyway, I was, interviewing him about his book, but I was really trying to get some insights because I wanted to do something different than what he did on this, on this book. And, and then for Spong, there was somebody before him that he was told to be careful of. Right. Um, and, and it's just a really good reminder that sometimes those little threats that you should be afraid of, maybe you stay away from some of those and some of them, they might actually be your new pathway. Mm. Right. And it might be like people are talking to us like we do our children, where when they run out to the end of the driveway, we, you know, put the fear of God in them to cross that street. It's like, stop, look both ways, never do this without me, be really careful. 
And then some point they're just going to drive out of the driveway, right? And you actually want them going down the driveway and leaving your house and moving out and moving on. And now that road, that road is not scary. That road is your path to freedom. And that's just taking the different stages of our lives and looking carefully at the things that seem attractive to us and the things that people are telling us to be, to be aware of and to be cautious of, or to be worried about. Let's, you know, take a peek at those two at, at the time of your life when, when the time is, when the time is right. And, and maybe it's your path to freedom and not the road you should be afraid to, to cross down. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Even Doug brought it up. But I do want to end that book out doing Jesus, the seven Doug takes the seven miracles in the gospel of John and shows how they're connected with developments in humanities, medicine, science, technology, structural design, justice, et cetera. So it's this amazing connection of the great things we're going to be doing, which a lot of people immediately assume is like, I'm going to raise a person from the dead or this guy's legs going to grow longer. It's like, actually there's a much more concrete, but still just as miraculous way of living this out through innovation, justice, and all these imaginative social cultural things. So I think the premise of that is just so good. It's what Doug's most recent book, Outdoing Jesus. So many books to look at the ones that were near and dear to my heart, church reimagined, 2005 i think it's like spiritual formation reimagine they changed it it started out as reimagining spiritual formation and then got changed to church reimagine church yeah. reimagine a christianity worth believing published in 2008 and if you read it it will still feel it'll still be ahead it'll still be inviting us forward which is an amazing thing so doug man really such a treat for me i appreciate you taking the time doing this kevin thank so you beautiful. my honor my friend my honor Thanks, Doug.